Coming up today, the rise of mask shaming, the hunt for coronavirus heads to the sewers and how climbing became the next big competitive sport. Welcome to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Templeton, and joining me this week are Amit Katwala. Hello. Vicky Turk. Hi. And Matt Reynolds. Hello. This was the week when Airbnb and Booking.com were accused of putting communities at risk for enabling lockdown-busting house parties that break social distancing rules. Airbnb says it's gone further than its rivals to protect the public during the pandemic, Last week, a man was stabbed at a house party hosted at an Airbnb rental in London. This was also the week when the UK announced further relaxations to some of its coronavirus lockdown rules. From July 4th, people will have to stay one metre, not two metres apart, and pubs, restaurants, hairdressers, hotels will be able to open, but with some restrictions. This is also the week when Apple announced an update to its operating system with new features coming to all of its devices. These include a translation app and an update to the Apple Watch, which automatically detects when you're washing your hands and gives you a 20-second timer. And it was finally the week when the Committee on Climate Change criticised the UK government's lack of action on climate change. So in October, Boris Johnson announced a Cabinet Committee on Climate Change to bring down emissions, but that committee has only met once since it was announced, and the UK is way behind target to meet its legally blinding, legally binding, legally binding goal of having net zero carbon emissions by 2050. So we finally know when the pubs in the UK are going to reopen. Are we all going to be rushing down to the local for a pint, or does it really not feel like the place or time? Well, my local has actually already been doing takeaway pints in line with a previous kind of uh, loosening of restrictions. Um, And honestly, it's quite nice sort of sitting in the park. I'm not sure I'd be tempted to go in a pub, especially given the current heat wave we're having in the UK. Yeah. Restaurants. Has anyone made a reservation for their their favourite romantic little restaurant for an evening out? Nothing yet. No. I'm quite I mean, happy sh- with shaking heads doesn't work on uh, <laughs> on an audio medium. <laughs> so you're going to stick with the takeaways. It's funny. I've been asking a lot of people this because the government's obviously hoping that this can be an aid to the economy and then people are going to return to these businesses. And I'm sure people will, right? Amit, you've booked a haircut. I'm sure you don't mind me saying. Long so people yeah. are kind of making these changes. But the idea of going in a pub or a restaurant at the moment just seems completely farcical, particularly, as Vicky says, while the weather is so nice. Um, Amit, I think this might be the last week that we asked for a Magpie update. Has there been any activity no, in the tree? No update at all, actually. I don't think I've seen them once. This is this is it now. I'm just me and my lonely self. They've clearly had the notice from the government. They're like, lockdown's over. We've done our, done our business. We've got Amit through lockdown. Now we can be on our merry way. I'm I'm so pleased that we brought this uh, semi-regular recurring segment onto the podcast. It's it's lightened everyone's lockdowns, I'm sure. What did you learn this week, Matt Reynolds? I learned that, and this is actually a fact coming in from a listener. So this is from Duncan, who wrote in after listening to our podcast while on a run. And so he writes, uh, and he's been reading a book about the sun, which is where I think this comes from. So he writes that it takes a photon about 170,000 years to go from the centre of the sun 
where it's created until it reaches the surface. And from the surface to the Earth, it only takes 8 minutes and 20 seconds to reach us. So that light that reached us today is actually 170,000 years plus 8 minutes and 20 seconds old, give or take a few tens of thousands of years. I suddenly feel very insignificant in the grand scheme of the universe. I wonder what this podcast is like if you listen to it while you're running. Do, do we help you run faster or slower, Duncan, or anyone else that listens to us while exercising? Is there anything that we could do to uh, to help improve your... Yes, Amit. I used to listen to this while I was running before I worked at Wired. How uh, was it? Uh, yeah, it was, well, it was very weird when I started coming on the podcast. I started sort of sweating and getting uh, you know my heart rate going up from the sort of association of your voices with uh, with the running. But yeah, it's quite good though because it's quite. I see. You know, it's quite a good length for a run. I feel. There you go. It's quite good. Thank you, Amit. Uh, what did you learn this week, then, Amit? Uh, I learned that there is a gene for grammar, sort of. So uh, the FOXP2 gene has been linked to the inability to construct compound or complex sentences or to effectively deploy, deploy the passive voice um it's also thought that a variant of the gene called fox p2.1 is linked to excessive grammar pedantry so researchers found that people with this version of the gene showed a different pattern of brain activity when shown grammatical errors and there were no grammatical errors in your readout of that fact which means that you do not well you maybe have the mutation then well, maybe, yeah. I think I did mess up actually saying the fact, so maybe I've got some other mutations. <laughs> <laughs> we'll move swiftly on. What did you learn this week, Vicky? Uh, well, speaking of the heatwave that we're currently having in the UK, we've got temperatures topping 30 degrees in some places, which for the UK, as we know, is is hot. Um, but temperature isn't the only thing you have to worry about. So some researchers say that this week we could see the highest ever uv level in the uk hitting uv index eight which the met office says is the highest that you see in the uk but possibly even above that maybe even nine um so wear your sun cream if you're going out uh, but this however is a long shot from the highest uv uv index ever recorded in the world in 2003 a uv index of 43.3 was recorded in a volcano in Bolivia. Now, some scientists dispute this. They don't think it could have been that high, but they still reckon it would have been sort of, you know, 20s, 30s, which is a long way off UV index 8. Wear sun cream, basically. Wear sun cream, wear a hat, don't risk it. UV, of course, is the thing that makes you burn and can give you skin cancer. can also give you vitamin D, but, um, you know, practice sun safety. Good advice. Uh, my fact is absolutely useless, um, but entertaining nonetheless. I learnt that Gibraltar's Barbary macaque population was cared for by the British Army, or the Gibraltar Division of it, until 1991. And by cared for, I mean really cared for. So the monkeys had a food stipend and a dedicated warden known as Keeper of the Apes, who tracked their health, diet and lifestyle. Um, births and deaths were also announced in the local Gibraltar newspaper and official government announcements. Ill or injured monkeys were taken to the Royal Naval Hospital of Gibraltar and received apparently the same level of treatment as people in the armed forces. I'm not quite sure what that looks like, uh, but there it is. There is a very comprehensive list of people who held the position of Keeper of the Apes on Wikipedia if you want to find out more. A reminder of the podcast pub quiz, which is next week. You can join us live on Wednesday, July 1st at 8pm London time and watch the Wired podcast team compete for the Matt Reynolds trivia 
crown. Has it weighed heavy on your head? It has, yeah. I did have to stop wearing it after a couple of days, but I will be putting it back on for the live broadcast. Excellent. I can confirm he is not wearing the hat right now, and perhaps the hat doesn't exist. Um, you can play along live at home, as well as ask us any burning questions you might have. The first show was a big success, with hundreds of you coming along, and we hope to make the next one even bigger and better. It's free to register and take part, because why would we charge? Head to Tiny dot cc forward slash wired quiz two to register your place amit can you read out that url again please that is tiny.cc forward slash wired quiz two and that's a numerical two rather than the word two written out it's like matt burgess never went away thank you very much our first story this week is about poop matt reynolds it is, yeah, just to lower the tone. It's about poop and it's about coronavirus. So we know that keeping track of coronavirus is a really, really difficult task, right? If you've been following the government figures, we know there's been so much said you know, in the pages of Wired as well about the you know, number of tests we're doing, how quickly people are being tested, you know, how many tests are returning positively. And that's because up until now, the only way we've really had to accurately check and track the number of cases in a given area is really widespread testing. Now, this is actually a really, really important figure because the amount of positive tests per the number of overall tests you do is a really good indicator of how well a country is doing at um, tracking its outbreak. So countries such as South Korea, Denmark, they perform hundreds of tests for every single positive confirmed case of COVID-19 they uncover. I think in Australia, it's something like they do about 1,200 uh, tests for every single one positive test that they uncover of, of COVID-19. So that gives you a sense of just how laborious this process is. But the UK government is now looking for a new way to track outbreaks that doesn't rely solely on these swabs and individual tests. So instead, researchers are trawling through our sewage to find traces of SARS-CoV-2, uh, SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes COVID-19, and they're looking in our poop to see if they can track the outbreak that way. I feel like, uh, and not to kind of criticise the scientists, I feel like trawling through sewage would very much be my last resort in pretty much any scenario. So, I mean, that doesn't feel like it's very accurate. Why are they doing this instead of just doing the contact tracing approach that other, or the the, story testing approach that other countries are are doing? Why, Why is this being pursued? I'm disappointed to hear that when you heard about the outbreak, you weren't putting on your wages and being like, well, if someone's going to get down in the sewage, it'll be me. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, that's a really, really good point. And obviously, this kind of tracing, it's not a replacement for doing uh, track and trace and doing individual testing, because, you know, you know, the kind of long and short of it is, the only way to tell if you have coronavirus is for you to have that test at the point when you are infected with the virus. But what we do know is that people that have already been infected uh, with the virus, they do shed traces of the virus uh, within their feces within kind of three days of being infected. And actually, that's really useful because um, it takes around, well, it takes on average around five to six days for people to show symptoms after being infected with the virus. And sometimes it's as long as two weeks. And obviously the situation we have at the moment is, although the government does a small amount of kind of randomised um, testing in, in the you know, get, to get a level of the overall 
you know, number of cases in the, in the population, most people don't go forward for a test unless they show symptoms. And we know that some people show no symptoms at all and other people only have mild symptoms. So there's a real problem with actually gauging, you know, whether infections are getting worse or getting, you know, getting better because a lot of people that have the condition, you know, have the virus, they just never really come forward for testing for lots of really good reasons. If you, if you have the virus, you have to stay at home. So you might as well stay at home if you think you have it. Anyway, now scientists and the government are hoping that wastewater analysis, which is what this whole kind of field is called, could give us a much more complete picture of how the virus is spreading. And actually, the, the way they do it is, is kind of similar to the normal testing. So what they do is they use a method called polymerase chain reaction, which basically finds these traces of, um, of virus RNA, which is you know, a single, single-stranded form of DNA. It duplicates it up for DNA and then kind of looks... Uh, to see how much of that is in a particular sample. So what what the government is doing is it's taking these samples from universities of untreated wastewater and it's trying to say, okay, these people in this area, they've got a certain, you know, uh, density of this kind of virus, um, you know, in the wastewater. And that kind of indicates that people living in this area might be on the verge of an outbreak or they're having a higher rate of infection than other people elsewhere in the country. So what's being done here in the UK? Is this something that's happening here? It is, yeah. So the government, so DEFRA, the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, just kind of announced this kind of, a, this kind of broad study into, into using this kind of approach. So we already know that water companies and several universities, notably Newcastle, Bangor, uh, Edinburgh and Bath, are already collecting sewage samples from wastewater treatment plants and, and they're you know, already testing them. But now they're going to be part of this kind of coordinated national trial that, as I said, is being headed up by DEFRA and the Environment Agency. And the idea is, is that data gathered from these projects will eventually feed into the COVID-19 alert system, which is created by the Joint Biosecurity Centre, which, if you remember, was that independent body that was set up by civil servants uh, and and the government that kind of monitors the spread of the virus across the country and advises the chief medical officers in England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland on how to deal with the regional spikes in infection. So the idea is, is we do maybe, uh, you know, some surveys have been twice weekly, some surveys have been once weekly, we kind of feed that data back and it might give us an early indication of where new outbreaks are happening. And there are examples out there in the world of where this has worked and worked really, really well. In in some countries, it's helped to detect, albeit after the fact, that there was an outbreak of coronavirus way, way earlier than anyone reported with symptoms, right? Yeah, exactly. So that, that case is in... Um in Italy, actually, so basically, uh, some Italian scientists found traces of coronavirus in wastewater, uh, and it dated back from 18th of December 2019. So that was six weeks before you know the first two cases were in the country, which were two Chinese tourists in Rome, and I think it's several months before the first local transmission case was in the country. So it gives you an indication of when the virus might have first entered the, the country. And the good thing also is that you can. Although you can only kind of test someone once in a one period of time, if you have wastewater samples, you can say, oh, you know what, unlock the sample from November. So, for instance, a country might know that, uh, you know, coronavirus wasn't circulating in the population in November. And some countries have been able to use this analysis to say, OK, we start again cases here. And that was a month before we started um, 
announcing them. Uh, you know, we've also seen that in France and the Netherlands and United States and Australia, they've also been testing untreated wastewater for the virus since March. And they've generally observed that the kind of rise and fall of virus concentration in that wastewater is a pretty good indication of officially reported rates. So officially reported rates go up, so do the traces in the uh, wastewater. And a two-month-long survey in Paris noticed there was a kind of sharp rise in viral concentration in sewage a few days before hospital cases surged. So we kind of know that actually it could give us a little bit of a prior indication. And it's not just coronavirus. So this field has been around, it's called wastewater epidemiology. It's been around for a little while, really. So we already use it to track things like um, polio or gastroenteritis. And it's also been used, I think it's been used in Australia to do, uh, you know, kind of drug testing. And it's been used in China as well to help police track down and arrest drug manufacturers. So this idea of monitoring our sewage to kind of get a picture of what's going on at a kind of borough level, perhaps, or a city level, is already quite well established. And we're kind of seeing one way in which it can be put to use. So is this something that's already happening? Like, are there, are there samples of, like, wastewater going back over the last few years from, like, you know, every single day? Like, how is it, is that, like, if they wanted to create, like, a map of how it's spread in the UK, is that something that they would have the, the wastewater samples historically to, to be able to go and do? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So I'm not quite sure on the UK specifically, but I think it's broadly true that when sewage, well, you know, when water companies test their water, they, I, I think quite often they basically take a sample and they test the sample, but then they'll leave part of that sample somewhere else and say, OK, well, if we need to go back in six months and check it to see if there was some trace of something we weren't originally searching for, we can have a look at it. And that's why we have these studies from, I can't remember which countries, but we have studies from certain countries that can say, OK, well, we started to first trace it. Um, then and yeah the Italy example is a good example of that it's because they went back you know historically so I'm not sure in the UK where we've got that you know historical data but the, but the idea is now is these universities are doing kind of you know when an epidemic is in you know more prevalent circulation they're doing say twice weekly um, searches to you know look at those kind of rates and then when it's you know a little bit um, you know when the rates kind of coming down like that at the moment they, they can reduce that to once a week and just kind of keep an eye on it but you're right it's it, it if they've got this kind of data, it can give a really good historical analysis as well. It'll give us good ideas of when the virus first entered the country. So, like, as you said, I guess it's not going to be a replacement for normal testing. It's not going to tell you if a particular individual has got coronavirus or has had it, but it could tell you whether a particular area of a city has got an outbreak. Or, and it could tell you that beforehand rather than kind of having to wait for people to start presenting with symptoms or going to hospital. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, yeah that, that's precisely right. Like, it's not it's not very helpful for you as an individual, but it is really helpful for you know a city and perhaps informing you know localized lockdowns, which you think probably is going to become quite useful because as you know as the overall rates of transmission uh, you know fall down, it's going to become even more important to kind of track individual areas of when transmission is happening. So and the kind of way you do this is that obviously. Um, you know, our sewage pipes, they kind of collect data from a lot of different places. Data is essentially poop. And so they collect that from loads of different places. But obviously it doesn't say, oh, someone in this you know, office block or someone in this house you know, has it. So what they kind of need to do is like perhaps start to kind of map how different pipes lead to, you know, treatment plants or maybe even places slightly before that and say, okay, it looks like it's kind of concentrated in, you know, this borough or it looks like it's concentrated in this area. And also, you know, it takes between half a day and three days for sewage to move from toilets to treatment plants anyway. So there's also that kind of, um, you know, slightly that, that kind of time span issue as well. Now, 
this may become more or less useful as time goes on because as more people start to return to work what you should see is a rise in viral concentrations in the wastewater and areas that are predominantly places of work. So at the moment, for instance, there might not be much coronavirus in Westminster because not a whole bunch of people live in Westminster. But a lot of people do work in Westminster. So the people doing these trials will also have to say, okay, well, what does this mean if we're seeing lots of cases in this area? Is that because people are working there? And if so, where do they live? Or perhaps this, you know, this workplace is a, a you know, a place of... Um, Transmission. So part of the task is to be able to break those cities up into smaller pockets of testing defined by the sewage system. And that might help us kind of do a more targeted approach. But it's certainly going to become slightly more complicated when everyone goes back to work rather than, you know, the moment when most people are still at home. And it's the, the sort of thing that we may have to rely on as we start to open up the economy and society more we've seen in germany recently the r rates that everyone's talking about so much really really spike but not because of widespread transmission of the virus it's because of very very concentrated outbreaks in germany it was a meatpacking factory where in the order of a thousand plus workers were all infected with coronavirus because of an outbreak there and potentially having this extra level of data from sewage could allow public health authorities to better understand how the virus is moving through communities and shut down quite concentrated pockets of it, as Matt's saying, based on where people work or live and where the transmission is taking place. Really fascinating story. We'll include a link in the show notes so you can check out loads more detail on it. Podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on that one. We'd really like to hear from you. Our second story this week is based on a fascinating feature that we've got in the latest edition of Wired magazine, which is all about the sport of climbing, Vicky. Yeah, so this is a feature um, by Stephen Armstrong, which you can check out in the current issue of Wired or on wired.co.uk. Um, and it's all about climbing. So for the very first time next year, climbing is going to be an Olympic sport. And UK climber Shauna Coxie is going to represent Team GB at the Olympic Games in Tokyo. Um, now... I'm not much of an authority on sport or climbing in particular, but to me, climbing, really cool, you know, something people do, you know, out in the wild, probably some near nature or something like that. Not really seen it in a, you know, an Olympic context. So, you know, is it, you know, is it really a sport already or is this kind of like a recreational activity? Like, is, is, is there already, already professional climbing competitions? It's a really interesting question, actually, because, um, you know, there are lots of different types of climbing and lots of different types of climbers out there who do it for different reasons. And the, the sport or the activity itself has evolved a lot over time as well. So, I mean, historically, climbing definitely wasn't seen as a sport. It was basically a way of getting to places. Uh, and the first record we have of someone climbing just for the sake of climbing is in the 1880s. After that, climbing started taking off and was known as alpinism at the time. At this point, it was still all outdoors and it was centred around reaching the peaks of mountains. So people would train on small rocks for expeditions on bigger mountains, which in turn would act as training to go and, you know, climb a bigger mountain later. And of course, there's lots of people still today who climb with a similar mindset, whose main goal is, you know, reaching the summit of a particular mountain or climbing a peak that hasn't yet been reached. Um, and that's definitely kind of one approach. 
But what we know is sport climbing has its roots back in the 60s. And this is when indoor climbing walls first started to become a thing, which have, you know, the resin holds mimicking natural lumps and bumps of rock and routes being set for climbers to attempt to complete. So if you go to an indoor climbing wall, these are usually marked out using different colours. And, um, you know, you're supposed to start at the bottom and follow a certain colour of hold all the way up to the top. It's a bit different to, you know, just trying to climb a mountain whichever way you can. And the people setting these routes are always trying to sort of invent new ways um, and new problems. They call them climbing problems for climbers to solve. And as the routes have sort of gotten harder, climbing technique has also changed. And if you look at sport climbers who generally climb on these indoor walls, although, you know, there's a lot of crossover, um, it's much more dynamic than it, than it used to be. And then you might expect if you were watching someone just trying to safely scale a mountain. So if you w- watch Shauna Coxey, the Team GB hopeful climb, there's lots of jumps and twists. Um, and it's definitely sort of changed a lot as a sport over the past few decades. My reference point for climbing as a sport is probably the 90s TV show Gladiators, <laughs> um, where people had to compete against uh, amusingly leotarded uh, gladiators to, to reach the top of things. And there it was very much a who can get to the, the top quickest, and it didn't matter how ridiculous you look while you're doing it. You just had to get to the top of the wall really, really quickly. I guess there's an issue with how do you turn something that isn't necessarily a competitive sport into an Olympic sport? So do they have points for style do they have to follow a certain route what's judged as making you an olympic champion is it speed or is there some technique involved as well so this is actually really controversial and uh, there have been climbing competitions for a while so usually it'll be things like um you know they'll give climbers a time limit in which to complete a certain route or problem um and you know whoever manages to complete the most or or the fastest is the winner but the olympic competition is is quite controversial among climbers because there are lots of different types of climbing but sport climbing is just one olympic category so the competition really consists of three different practices the first one is bouldering which is probably what most people listening have done if you enjoy climbing. That's when you have to complete a route following the coloured holes uh, with no ropes. And this is what Shauna Coxey generally does. She's won the Bouldering World Cup multiple times. Um, And in bouldering, what happens is the climbers are kept out of sight of the competition wall until it's their turn. So they don't know what what they're going to face. And they're then given a time limit to complete a number of fixed routes on that wall, which is up to 4.5 metres high. So it's really about, um, you know, solving it in your head, like which way am I going to approach this? How should I tackle this? And then trying to complete it as fast as you can. You are in the World Cup bouldering competitions. You're allowed to fall off the wall and start again, but you, you do have to do it sort of within that time limit. The second type of climbing that's represented in the Olympic activity is lead climbing, which involves safety ropes and walls up to 15 metres, so much taller. And in this part of the competition, climbers have to climb as high as they can in a time limit. Um, So it's basically, you know, trying to get as high as you can on that wall as the clock is counting down. But it's the third activity which has really caused some controversy around the Olympics, and that's speed climbing. So in speed climbing, two climbers race on a set route up to 15 metres tall. Everyone's seen the route before and has a chance to prepare for it. 
um, and you're racing against another competitor to basically see who can who can get up there fastest. And this is really quite different to what most people do when they're climbing, if they're, for example, bouldering. One climber described the inclusion of speed climbing in the Olympics as like asking a middle distance runner to compete in a sprint. One, one of the things that struck me when I was reading the feature is how the, they refer to these uh, problems, not in speed climbing, but in the other disciplines, they refer to them as kind of problems. And it's like very much a mental activity of like, how quickly can you assess the route that you need to climb? And like, how quickly can you then figure out what, which ways you need to move to, to get to the top? Whereas speed climbing, as you say, is much more like a sprint. It's very much about how strong you are, how physically strong you are. And it seems kind of weird that they've like just lumped these two quite different sports into one competition. Yeah, it's definitely a very different activity um, and it involves a different type of training. You know, you're training again and again on the same route for speed climbing. It's it's really a different skill. And as you say, usually part of a climber's success is down to that sort of mental challenge of solving the climbing problem when it's put in front of them. So racing against someone else um, is a whole different mindset. And I'm sure there's lots of sports psychology around this as well. When you have someone else on the wall doing the same challenge as you, that's probably a different headspace that you have to be in than when you're just sort of solving a problem on your own. Um, So it is something that, you know, a lot of the climbers taking part are really focusing on training that aspect of the Olympics because, you know, ultimately the winner is going to be the person who performs the best across all three disciplines. It's going to be sort of averaged out across them. Um, So if you're a really good boulderer, you know, you don't want your speed climbing score to bring you down. So Shauna Coxie has, has definitely been kind of focusing on speed climbing as well. Uh, Lead climbing is also a bit different to bouldering in that it requires sort of more endurance. Um, So it's about dealing with that lactic acid buildup as you continue up the taller wall. Um, So they are all a bit different and require different types of training to to kind of be able to do all three to that really high level. So I'm quite intrigued by this. And, you know, whenever the Olympics actually does roll around, I may actually you know watch this one but what should I be looking out for you know are there superstars in in climbing and you know is it oh actually you know a really tall person or a really skinny person they're probably gonna be the ones to watch what can I what do I need to know about climbing to make myself sound clever when I watch it and I could be like oh yeah well (laughs) of course she did that because she's got the the leg thing (laughs) to be honest it's it's this is one of the interesting things about climbing and it's uh, one reason why some people say you know it really is the ultimate olympic sport because it really does require the whole body and the mind to be at peak performance to excel so you know in a lot of sports you can practice one thing over and over and keep making minute improvements you know i guess if you're like playing tennis you're practicing your swing again and again and again and then maybe your backhand again and again and again and in running you're probably you know making slight tweaks to your, to your gait and things like that or slight improvements on your lap times um, but climbing can throw all sort of things at you so you know if you take the bouldering competition or, or lead climbing you don't know the route that you're going to have when you are k- kind of first see the wall so it could be something that requires a lot of arm strength it could require a lot of leg strength it could require you know it could be a really tricky mental puzzle where you know you're initially thinking how on earth am I supposed to get to from that hold to that hold and so you really sort of have to prepare for everything and there's all these different types of holds they have you know you've probably seen if you've been to an indoor climbing wall some of them have massive overhangs so you're basically hanging from the ceiling Um, others have really tiny holds so you can just fit sort of one thumb and finger on them 
Um, so really, it, it's it's a massive range of physical activity and mental activity that's required. And Shauna Coxie says the three things you really need to focus on are shoes, chalk and finger strength. So shoes and chalk are basically your only equipment for climbing. Um, and obviously, there's lots of technology that goes into developing sort of the rubber that can can fit, help you um, stick to the wall a little bit better. Chalks, you know, helps your grip so you don't slip off it. Finger strength is quite interesting because there aren't actually muscles in your fingers, only tendons. Um, and the way climbers improve that is by practicing each grip that they might have to use on a climbing hold separately. Um, you've, you might have seen if you've been to a climbing wall, people hanging off what's called fingerboards, where it's literally just these very tiny little holes in the wall that you put your fingers in and kind of try and hold your entire body, body weight off of and pull yourself up. And um, so that's the sort of thing that, that, that they do. And finger injuries are very common. So it really is um, quite a feat of um, physical and mental strength to be a top climber. I can't believe that there are no muscles in your fingers. Apparently that doesn't so. seem like something that should be true. <laughs> <laughs> so how do they how do they train to get? So where where are you drawing the strength from? Well, so you can you can train to have these stronger stronger fingers, stronger grips, um, and you basically do just train it by doing the different grips and um, hmm. you know trying to pull yourself up on those. But um, one of the physiotherapists uh, who was describing this says, you know, you can train one grip to be really good. But then if you if you change the grip, those fingers won't be any better at another grip if you haven't practiced that. So it's not like it's not like you overall chain. It's not like training your fingers to be generically stronger. It's really kind of mm. focusing on the different uh, push and pulls that you're going to have to do with each finger. I'm getting the sense from the way that you're talking about climbing grips that you might have done some climbing in the past, Vicky. Oh, not really. I'm I'm very much a, a, a hobbyist. Before lockdown, I, I went a couple of times to a climbing wall uh, locally to me. And I have to say, I really have a lot of respect for climbers because it is incredibly difficult. I mean, the first time I went, I could barely move my arms for a week afterwards just from the, the amount of strength required. Um, and it really is a, a, a sort of, mental challenge as well when you see the different holds and you know as a beginner I look at some of them and just wonder how is that humanly possible and watching other people then oh well actually they're going to put their leg on that one that I thought you'd put your hand on and then they're going to do this twist and kind of jump a bit that way it really is quite incredible to watch have it do any of you climb I think I'll stick to alpinism <laughs> I, li I like going going up things that I can walk up even if it's a bit of a scramble say like Mount Snowdon which is a small mountain by mountain standards that's fine you have to use your hands a little bit but not really um, and there's sort of a pub at the top which well there used to be um, which is which is good news and you can take a train on the way down um, that's more <laughs> my kind of vibe uh, a bit more relaxed I guess yeah, there's not trains on most climbing walls, I don't think. No, and sometimes you wouldn't have a rope attaching you, which just seems utterly, utterly terrifying. It's a fascinating feature. Um, you'll learn way more about climbing than you ever thought it was possible to learn, including that fingers don't have muscles. It's in the latest issue of Wired magazine and online as well. But you should go buy the magazine because it's great. Wired.co.uk forward slash subscribe is probably the link. If it isn't, you'll find it at the top of the page. Our third story this week is about something that maybe we've all experienced in recent weeks, which would have seemed utterly inconceivable in the before times. Mask shaming, Amit, has become a thing. 
Yeah, so you might remember about a month ago, uh, there was a video on social media of a woman in Staten Island in a supermarket being basically hounded out of the store for not wearing a mask. So five other shoppers kind of screamed and shouted at her and swore at her. Uh, and some like basically basically chased her out of this supermarket uh, in New York, uh, which has obviously been quite badly hit by the coronavirus pandemic. Um, I was like quite fascinated by this just on a sort of sociological, psychological level. Um, so I started doing some research into mask shaming, as you said. But what I quickly found is that weirdly mask shaming means different things in different areas. So in New York, mask shaming is shaming people for not wearing a mask. But actually in other areas of the United States, it's the opposite. So in May, same time that this video from New York came out, the governor of North Dakota had to plead with his citizens not to mask shame people for wearing a mask. He said, if somebody wants to wear a mask, there should be no mask shaming, um, you know, kind of pleading with his, his citizens to dial up their empathy and understanding. It's such a weird thing because it, it hits up against two different belief sets that you should wear a mask because it's the right thing to do to help control the spread of the virus. Or you shouldn't wear a mask because it impinges on your freedoms. And why should anyone tell you to cover your face if you don't want to? So it, it seems obvious why it would be so different in different areas, but there's an awful lot more going on here behaviourally that guides how people react to being told to do something. Yeah, it's really fascinating. And partly it's because there are different kind of restrictions in those different areas. So, uh, you know, three months ago, going to get a haircut here was like the most normal thing in the world. Now, you know, you read articles about how there's this like clandestine network of hairdressers operating, you know, undercover um, when the government um, introduced the rule that you have to wear face masks on public transport here in the UK, that was on June 15th. And by six o'clock that evening on the news, I saw a woman uh, describing how she had been, you know, effectively shaming a fellow passenger for not having a mask on. So adding kind of the weight of law behind these things, I think, kind of accelerates the rate at which people are willing to shame other people. Um, so it's the same in New York, where uh, the woman was hounded out of the store. Masks have been mandatory uh for situations where you can't be six feet apart um, since for months, basically. Whereas North Dakota, where people were mask shaming in the other direction, is one of a few states where there aren't any recommendations or rules around wearing masks in public. So how do you, like the norms change so quickly psychologically? How does something like wearing a mask go from being really rare and, you know, something you might kind of, if you saw someone on the tube wearing a mask as you say, three months ago, you might kind of give them a bit of a look to so common that actually it's the other way around. And if no one's wearing, if someone isn't wearing a mask, you might give them the same look. Yeah, I found this really fascinating. So this is kind of what I wanted to like dig into a bit. So social psychology research shows that we're really strongly influenced by the people around us, basically, particularly when we're entering a new environment for the first time. So if you get on the train, um, to go to work in a week or a month uh, for the first time in ages and the people around you are wearing masks uh, you're more likely to wear one yourself or you know if they're not you're maybe less likely to wear one um, and so social psychologists break down the reasons for why we conform to these social norms into two categories so they, there's normative social influence which is kind of driven by this desire to be liked, this desire for people not to kind of uh, harass you or vilify you or hate you for not doing the right thing or there's informational social influence, which is kind of motivated this, by this desire to be cracked because you, you're wearing a mask because you think it's the right thing to do and you, you want to be in the kind of right, uh, uh, you know, in the right on this issue. Um, so, you know, if we're going to a supermarket, we're getting a train, we might look to others to guide our behaviour. Or if we're going somewhere else where we know that people will judge us for wearing a mask, then we might decide not to wear one, even though we think it's the right thing to do. So if you were going to uh, North Dakota, you might 
actually not wear a mask. Whereas if you were going to a similar setting in New York, you might decide to wear one. Um, and what we what uh, social psychologists have found is that there's a tipping point at around 25% for large social change. So this study from 2018 from the University of Pennsylvania um, looked at kind of uh, the point at which uh, something goes from being a minority uh, group doing it to everyone kind of starting to adopt it. And it, it happens when around 25% of the population starts uh, doing a particular behaviour, you suddenly get this acceleration and this kind of uh, massive uh, spike in uh, uptake on this behaviour. So um, that applies to things like mask wearing, but also to add towards attitudes towards, you know, equal rights. Um, so recently we've seen kind of a tipping point re- reached with uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, for instance, and attitudes towards that in the United States have changed a lot in a very short space of time. But I'm guessing that this doesn't just break down on a population level because if I enter a room and you know, 90% of the people in there are wearing face masks, I'm probably going to feel like I'm sticking out a little bit, I probably should put a face, ba- face mask on, um, even if that population isn't necessarily indicative of the overall population. So do we know how this kind of breaks down if you start to drill into smaller groups of people? Yeah, so it kind of depends on the way you identify yourself and like the, 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 the groups that you identify yourself as belonging to. So it depends on your social circle. And, you know, so, you you know, if you identify with people that are wearing masks, you might be more likely to wear one. If you identify with people that think it's a, an affront to their civil liberties, you might be less likely to wear one. So in the States, research has shown that the decision to wear a mask has kind of become tangled up into being just another aspect of identity politics. So Democrats are more likely to wear masks than Republicans. College graduates are more likely to wear masks than people without a college degree. The important thing here is, does it actually work? Because if you're going to rant and rave at someone for not wearing a mask or or wearing a mask, you want there to be an outcome and for that outcome to be spread across society. And I suppose there's, as well as a tipping point of getting people to behave a certain way, there's also a tipping point at which a certain percentage of the population need to wear masks in order for the step to be useful. So is getting really, really wound up and annoyed about the way people behave an effective way to get them to change their behaviour? It kind of depends on where the message is coming from. So um, epidemiologists uh, are kind of drawing parallels with the um, AIDS campaign in the um, early 1980s when they were trying to get people to where um, use protection when having sex um, and the original initial because of a rule of congress which kind of um, banned the use of uh, federal funds for uh, thing, anything that kind of promotes homosexuality this was like in the late 80s uh, it meant that the adverts that were being put out were like really kind of moralizing and shaming and like striking this tone of you know uh, almost like vilifying people for what was a perfectly natural activity um, and they obviously failed to have the desired effect so um, right now, people are kind of trying to design these campaigns to get people to wash their hands and to maintain social distance and to wear masks. And it's important that the Julie Marcus, who's an epidemiologist at Harvard, just kind of says it's important that they don't try strike this kind of moralising tone and they kind of speak to people in a way that's going to actually get them to change their behaviour. Um, but that's quite different to uh, what goes on at kind of an interpersonal level. So it's one thing if it's like the government or the public health authorities talking to you, but. If the, if the shaming is coming from your peer group, then yeah, it can work depending on who it's coming from. So one example that's used in an article I read is about um, a runner who might get shouted at in the street for not wearing a face mask, probably wouldn't change their behaviour. But if then when they get home, you know, and they log onto like a runner's forum uh, where people criticise them for not wearing a face mask, that might be more likely to change their behaviour. So social psychologists um, 
kind of break the bonds that we have between people into like strong ties and weak ties. Uh, and like diseases spread really quickly both, both, across both strong ties and weak ties. You can catch it from a stranger at an airport or a pub. But a behaviour like mask wearing spreads better over like strong ties. So you're more likely to wear one if your friends are wearing one or if your colleagues are wearing one. So one of the challenges of getting people to adopt the behaviours that will prevent a second wave will be trying to basically activate weak ties using social media so that behaviour good behavior that we want that will help stop the spread of the virus can start to spread more quickly than the virus itself there's something quite terrifying that the end conclusion all of that is it comes down to taking out facebook ads try and get people to do the right thing that that's basically what we're talking about right to spread the message across weak ties it's more like it's more like engaging with with groups that might be clustered together online and trying to like uh, influence. It's almost, it kind of works in a similar way to like some of the de-radicalization research that goes on where they kind of try and infiltrate those groups and, and, and basically try and act as an example of how to behave. So especially now in a, a moment where we're all kind of like separated and like locked in, um, locked down and we're not really seeing people in person, those kind of uh, weak ties, which would normally be like a Facebook group or like, you know, people you follow on Twitter or whatever are becoming a lot more important. And if you can try and influence those and influence behavior through those, then you might have a chance of uh, the the behaviour spreading as quickly as the virus itself. So are you saying that the government might want to think about infiltrating Mumsnet and planting some kind of new threads? It's like, am I being unreasonable? I just saw someone not wear a face mask and I shouted at them to kind of get the sense that, huh, all these people are pretty up on the face mask stuff. It's more like the government might want to think about like practicing what they preach and like wearing masks themselves uh like those are the weak ties right if you see boris johnson on tv and he's not wearing a mask that's a weak tie and if he is wearing a mask you know and if if you go if you watch tv and everyone's wearing masks then those are the kind of weak ties that will be reinforced uh so it's kind of that kind of thing i think i suppose it could be a bit like at the beginning of lockdown um instagram did that um hashtag stay home campaign and if you sort of did an instagram story and about you know something you were doing in home at home because you couldn't go out of because of lockdown and you put did the hashtag stay home thing and it would prioritize those stories so basically trying to promote people who were you know following the lockdown guidelines and kind of make a virtue of it i suppose and group people together through this shared inability to go outside yeah and like if you go on twitter like a lot of people have like put changed their profile pictures to pictures of themselves wearing a mask which i think is like a really classic example of how these weak ties can be reinforced via social media obviously that's not quite as strong as like you know one of your best mates shouting at you for not wearing a mask but like it could have some effect and it's really not had as much of an effect in in the uk as perhaps some other european countries i've been reading a few stories about cities like barcelona where it's now common practice for people to have made their masks at home and they they wash them and they hang them out to dry and everyone can see these sort of strings of masks hanging up between apartments in the city center and and that that behavior has become normalized quite quickly which is what you're referring to earlier amit so it'll be interesting to see in countries and cities and communities where that behavior isn't normalized yet how quickly it can become normalized once these once this momentum builds up behind it podcast at wired.co.uk are you a mask shamer have you been mask shamed what have you seen in your local communities and friend groups about how people are grappling with these new societal norms and making changes to their lives please do get in touch 
a final reminder um, to sign up for the Wired Podcast Pub Quiz. We're recording it live next week. It's on Wednesday, July 1st at 8pm London time on Zoom. You can tune in and watch the Wired Podcast team compete for Matt Reynolds' trivia crown. It's free to sign up. Head to tiny.cc forward slash Wired Quiz 2 to register your place. Once more, Amit, with the URL. That's tiny.cc forward slash Wired Quiz 2. Is it fun? No. Everyone's <laughs> shaking their heads. It is fun, is the answer. I, I was expecting you to be a bit more enthusiastic about the quiz. I'm, it I'm will be fun. Am- I had it fun will be fun. Am- will it be fun? <laughs> I had fun all the way through, and then the fun continued afterwards. It's so much fun, you won't believe um, we're not going to be putting it out on the main podcast feed because we're going to be doing the regular podcast the next day. Um, so if you want to join in the Wired Podcast Pub Quiz, your only chance is to do so live. Um, tiny.cc forward slash Wired Quiz 2 to register. We hope to see as many of you as possible there. And if you can't join us live, then you can join us for the regular podcast, which will be out on the podcast feed next friday as always thanks so much as always for listening we will catch you really soon bye-bye bye bye